Good evening. I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the third presentation in the 2021-22 Leadership Forum series, Moving People, the Perils and Promise of Nationalism. This year, we've invited scholars and experts to discuss the moral, ethical, and legal implications of global migration and asylum. Together, we've been exploring how leaders and communities navigate the economic, social, and cultural transformation of a world with and without borders and walls. Tonight, we're honored to welcome James Anaya for his discussion what international law has to say about indigenous peoples. Does it matter? I'd like to thank our colleague, Dr. David Wilkins, the E. Claiborne Robbins Distinguished Professor of Leadership Studies for connecting us with Professor Anaya. Professor Wilkins, on sabbatical and unable to be with us this evening, has taught many courses and written many articles and books on the plight of indigenous peoples. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our student who will in turn introduce our speaker. Caitlin Lindstrom is a senior double majoring in leadership studies and political science. She's served on the Jepson Student Government Association since her sophomore year and is currently the organization's co-president. She's an operations assistant at the university's Bonner Center for Civic Engagement and she also works as a resident assistant. As the philanthropy chair for the Trick or Treat Street, she helps plan and implement an annual philanthropic and community event for area children and youth held at the University of Richmond on our campus. She also chairs a group that facilitates alternative service-based service spring break trips for UR students. Caitlin hopes to attend law school following her May commencement. And now I'd like to turn things over to Caitlin, who, Caitlin, who will introduce our speaker. Thank you, Dean Peart. James Anaya is the former Dean at the University of Colorado Boulder Law School, where he currently serves as University Distinguished Professor and the Nicholas Doman Professor of International Law. He has traveled the world bringing international human rights and issues concerning indigenous peoples to the forefront and advising numerous organizations on these matters. Professor Anaya formerly practiced law in Albuquerque, New Mexico, representing Native American peoples and other minority groups. He has represented indigenous groups from many parts of North and Central America in landmark cases before domestic and international tribunals, including the United States Supreme Court and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. He helped draft the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. He served as lead counsel for the Indigenous Parties on the landmark case in which the Inter-American Court of Human Rights for the first time upheld Indigenous land rights as a matter of international law. As the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Inter Indigenous Peoples from 2008 to 2014, he monitored the human rights conditions of indigenous peoples worldwide, addressed human rights violations, and promoted practical measures to secure indigenous peoples' rights. He is the author of several books, including Indigenous Peoples and International Law, and the widely used textbook, International Human Rights, Problems of Law, Policy, and Process. 
Professor Anaya has served on the law faculty at the University of Arizona and on the faculty of the University of Iowa. He has been a visiting professor at Harvard Law School and the University of Toronto, as well as the University of Tulsa. Thank you for joining us this evening, Professor Anaya, and welcome. Thank you, Caitlin, for that very uh, kind introduction. And I wanna thank also uh, Dean Pert for welcoming me to participate in, um, in this series and also recognize uh, Shannon Best for her uh, very um, able organizational capabilities and getting me all set to give this presentation. Um, the International Law on Indigenous Peoples is a, a relatively new uh, development, which has uh, been generated in, in significant part by Indigenous Peoples' uh, own efforts internationally and at home. Uh, this body of international law is, is made up of uh, several multilateral international treaties, in, including treaties as interpreted by uh, international courts, uh, commissions and committees. Uh, it's, it's also based on an ever more uh, widespread pattern of, of international practice and normative consensus that constitutes what uh, we international lawyers call customary uh, international law. Um, reflecting this body of international law to a substantial extent, and indeed a driving force in generating it, is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights uh, of Indigenous Peoples, which was, was adopted by the UN General Assembly on September 13, 2007, 2007 excuse me. Now, a number of the provisions of uh, this document are still uh, aspirational, but, but the core precepts of, of the declaration are representative of norms that are, are now, uh, or that can be considered, and I argue are now binding in international law. Uh, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples represents, in, in, in a real sense, I believe, the triumph of ideas about human rights over power and over entrenched uh, patterns of misdealing over time. Um, these ideas that are advanced in the declaration are, are premised on a recognition that indigenous peoples uh, historically have been denied basic human rights and continue to suffer the, the legacies of historical injustice. The declaration motivates understanding of the ongoing need for reconciliation with indigenous peoples throughout the world. And it provides a guide for the steps in that reconciliation. These steps begin with not just understanding the basic humanity of indigenous peoples, but with embracing the idea of valuing their distinctive cultures, the idea of respect and even sacred reverence for the land that indigenous peoples traditionally have displayed, and the idea of a future in which indigenous cultures and the environmental ethic they have inspired can flourish as part of the, the, the broader human experience. Uh, so this evening I want to discuss the ongoing need uh, for the United States, uh, along with other countries, but I'm focusing this evening particularly on the United States and the majority society, and the need for them to achieve reconciliation with indigenous peoples in this country. 
And also I'll be discussing how the norms expressed in the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples can be a genuine tool uh, in that reconciliation, hence why international law in, on Indigenous Peoples matters. It's often said that uh, the United States of America is the greatest nation on earth. Now I question uh, the wisdom of this assertion, but, but nonetheless I acknowledge that it reflects homage to the visionary founders and the democ democratic innovation they implanted, uh, a fundamental faith in the country's political uh, and economic system and celebration of the common ethos uh, of, of liberty and, and equality that is understood to mark uh, American identity. Yet it is simply a matter of fact with which Americans must contend that the claim to exceptional greatness is wedded to historical processes that defy it. If indeed the greatness of a country is dependent upon an elevated commitment to what is right and just rather than merely being a function of power. Embedded in the story of the country is the glorification of settlement and westward expansion over what is usually portrayed as previously untamed and uncivilized lands. And this glorification is animated by a national myth of manifest destiny. The underbelly of this story includes the costs to the country's indigenous or native peoples who, who suffered material loss and, and social and cultural upheaval on a massive scale. History has left open wounds that have not yet healed and, and somehow remain largely invisible to the majority society and, and the political elite. Now, while most acutely felt by the indigenous peoples of the country, these wounds are also afflictions on the country as a whole. The Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is an important tool for shedding light on the reality of Native peoples, for cross-cultural and understanding, and for achieving the still needed reconciliation and healing. Now, as was pointed out in the introduction, I, uh, from 2008 to 2014, I served as uh, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the, on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And you know, you ask, what is this a, a Special Rapporteur? Well, it's just a, a fancy term for someone who reports. Um, so in that capacity, I, I, I traveled uh, around the world and uh, uh, reporting on the human rights conditions of, of Indigenous Peoples. And among the, the many activities as uh, uh, that I realized as a Special Rapporteur, uh, I, I conducted a tour of the United States to report on the conditions of native peoples in this country. I spent a few days in, in Washington meeting with government officials, and then I, I traveled to various places across the country over a period of several days to meet with indigenous communities and their leaders. Now, when I returned to my home uh, after the tour, Waiting for me was a manila envelope stuffed with letters written by students from the White River High School in South Dakota. This is a school where a majority of the students are from the nearby reservation of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. 
In a cover letter, the, the class's teacher explained that the students, and I'm quoting now, would like to feel they have a voice as it is so desolate here that it is sometimes hard to remember there is an outside world. He continued, despite all the hardships here, these kids are so incredibly resilient and talented. These words written by the teacher were striking, but not as striking as the letters from the kids. And I read the, the first letter in the stack, which was from a 15-year-old girl who wrote, life here is very hand-to-mouth. Out here, we don't have the finer things. You, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. And I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes I don't eat. I've never told this to uh, anyone this before, not even my mom, but I don't eat sometimes because I feel bad about making my mom buy food that I know is expensive. And you know what? Life is hard enough for my mom, so I will probably never tell her. My parents have enough to worry about. I do not know what you can do, but try your very best to help us. Please help us. We can do this. Yes, we can, exclamation point. The, the, the hardship combined with resilience in these words was reflected in the other letters. Together, these letters gave me a highly personalized gloss on the US census data that, that, that show uh, indigenous Americans to be in a highly disadvantaged condition in comparison with others. As I'm sure many of you are aware, overall, uh, Native Americans suffer from uh, poverty, poor health, a low attainment in, in formal education, and a, a range of related social ills at, at rates that far exceed those of any other ethnic or racial group in, in the country. One of the grimmest statistics is that Native American women are twice as likely to be sexually assaulted as non-Native women. And nearly 80% of these assaults are committed by non-Native men. The, the conditions of extreme disadvantage that are experienced by the vast majority of the country's Native Americans are, are not mere happenstance. We can't forget that these conditions stem from the loss of vast territories with abundant resources, the active suppression of indigenous cultures, the undermining of indigenous people's own institutions of self-governance, entrenched patterns of racial discrimination and outright brutality. Uh, many Indian nations conveyed land to the United States or its colonial predecessors by treaty. But in most instances, they did so under coercion following warfare or threat of warfare. And it was an exchange usually for a little more than promises of government assistance and protection that usually proved illusory or worse. In other cases, lands were simply taken by force or fraud. In many instances, treaty provisions that guaranteed, excuse me, that guaranteed reserve rights to tribes over lands were broken by the United States under uh, pressure to acquire land for 
uh, non-Indigenous interests. Now, I think it's a testament to the goodwill of Indian nations that they have uniformly insisted on observance of the treaties, even regarding them as sacred compacts, rather than challenging their terms as, as, as inequitable. Nearly in, in all cases, the loss of, of land meant the substantial or complete undermining of indigenous people's uh, own economic foundations and means of subsistence, as well as cultural loss, given the centrality of land to cultural and related social patterns. Especially the devastating instances of, of this, this kind of loss involved the forced removal of indigenous peoples from uh, their traditional or ancestral territories. This happened, for example, with the Choctaw, uh, Cherokee, and uh, other indigenous uh, peoples who were removed from their homes in the southeastern United States to uh, what was then called the Oklahoma Territory. Uh, this was in a forced trek that, that, that has been called the Trail of Tears, um, a trek in, in which uh, many of, of these people perished. And in, in addition to millions of acres of lands lost, often in violation of, of treaties uh, with the tribes, a history of inadequately, inadequate, inadequately controlled extractive and other activities within or near the remaining indigenous lands, including uh, nuclear weapons testing and uranium uh, mining in the, in the Western United States, has resulted in, in widespread environmental harm and has, has caused serious and, and, and continued health problems among Native Americans. In many places, including in Alaska and the Pacific Northwest in, in particular, indigenous peoples continue to, de to depend on hunting and fishing. And these subsistence activities are essential for both their physical and their cultural survival, especially in, in isolated areas. Excuse me, however, indigenous peoples face continuing threats to their vital use of animal and other natural resources due to competing demands on the resources and restrictive state and federal regulatory regimes. With their loss of land, uh, indigenous peoples have, have lost control over, over places of, of cultural and religious significance, particular sites and geographic spaces that are sacred to indigenous peoples can be found throughout the vast expanse of lands that have passed to government hands. The ability of, of indigenous people to use and access their sacred places is often curtailed by, by mining, logging, hydroelectric and other development projects which are carried out under permits issued by federal or, or state authorities. In many cases, the very presence of these activities re represents a, a desecration. Historically added to the taking of indigenous lands was the direct assault on indigenous cultural expression that was carried out or facilitated by uh, the federal and state governments. Likely the, the program of, of, of this type with the the most devastating consequences was the systemic removal of indigenous children from their families to place them in government or, or church-run boarding schools. 
these programs had as their objective purging indigenous children of their indigenous identities. Captain Richard Pratt, the founder of the, the Carlisle Indian School, uh, coined the phrase, and I'm quoting, uh, kill the Indian in him, save the man. Now, with this phrase, he announced the government's boarding school policy in the 1880s. And this policy continued well into the, 19, uh, the 1900s. Emotional, physical, and sexual abuse within the boarding schools has, has been well documented. Typically upon entering a boarding school, indigenous uh, Children had, had their hair cut, that is, indigenous boys. Um, the, the boys and girls were forced to wear uniforms and were, were punished for speaking their, their languages or, or practicing their traditions. The compounded effect of generations of indigenous people who, who passed through these schools, including people, elderly people still living, uh, cuts deep in indigenous communities throughout the country where, where social problems are often uh, pervasive and, and loss of, of languages is widespread. Uh, now, additionally, a, a pattern of, of placing indigenous uh, children in, in non-indigenous care under state custody proceedings with, with similar effects on indigenous individuals and communities continued well into the 1970s. Uh, now this pattern was uh, blunted or, uh, by, by, by passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act in, in 1978. Uh, this, this act uh, of Congress advances a strong presumption of indigenous custody for uh, indigenous children. But this, this federal legislation continues to face barriers for it's, it's, it's implementation, including by court challenges to the, the constitutionality of, of this act. Indigenous peoples throughout the country stress the importance to the health and well-being of their peoples of securing and recovering the various expressions and practices of their cultures, including indigenous languages, and of being able to transmit their cultures and identities to future generations. They also stress the importance of securing ties to land and, and natural resources and, and of enhancing self-government capacity and respect for uh, tribal sovereignty. That is the self-governing authority uh, of, of, of indigenous people that is to, deemed to be inherent to them as, as distinct peoples. Now it can, can readily be seen that historical uh, wrongdoings against Native Americans uh, mark the history of the settlement of the country and, and the building of the country's economy. Yet, Americans, other than Native Americans whose ancestors were first on the continent, tend to glorify the building of the world's richest and most powerful country from what is usually portrayed as a previously untamed and uncivilized land despite the costs to the prior inhabitants. Now that glorification embellished with accounts of manifest destiny uh, was historically facilitated by regarding the first peoples as 
being of an inferior, inferior race and culture, indeed as savages. And this characterization is found not only in popular discourse among the dominant society, but also in the legal opinions of the nation's highest court that served to justify the subjugation of native peoples and the taking of their lands. Quote, every American schoolboy knows, wrote Justice Reed for the US Supreme Court in 1955. Again, I quote, that the savage tribes of this continent were deprived of their ancestral ranges by force. It was not a sale, but the conqueror's will that deprived them of their land, wrote Justice Reed. Now, while overtly racially discriminatory attitudes have, have, have faded, although not disappeared, the conditions of Native Americans and their legitimate aspirations of, of self-sufficiency and, and, and self-determination have remained relatively invisible in the public sphere. This invisibility is fueled by persistent stereotypes that tend to render Native Americans as relics of the past. Uh, these stereotypes are perpetuated by the use of Indian names or imagery by professional and other sports teams, uh, including one of them in the, in the NFL playoffs. Uh, they're also encouraged by caricatures in, in the popular media and even in mainstream education on, on history and, and social studies. And many of you can attest to that by the books that you, uh, that you used in, in your uh, elementary and education and, beyond, and education beyond that. Now, thankfully, the disrespectful use of, of Indian names or, or, or imagery and and, and the caricatures have subsided, but, but the stereotypes nonetheless have succeeded in obscuring understanding of the reality of Native Americans today, uh, in, in denigrating Native cultures and in keeping alive attitudes of racial discrimination. But at the same time, and this is extremely important, Indigenous peoples throughout the country are rebuilding strong, healthy, and economically vibrant communities within the reservations or other spaces that, uh, that, that, that have been left to them that they've been able to reclaim. And they are working to recover, uh, preserve, and, and to, to transmit to future generations their distinctive uh, cultural manifestations, including languages and, and religious practices. And reflecting the resilience of the, of the native high school students who wrote to me from, from Rosebud, South Dakota, it, it is apparent that many of the hundreds of indigenous nations and tribes that have survived in America are, are now succeeding in, in this, the, this effort. Many are finding creative ways to exercise greater capacities of, of self-governance to promote education and sustainable economic development in their communities and, and to celebrate their, their cultural identities. Still, Native peoples face multiple barriers from dominant political actors at the state and, and federal levels. And by and large, for mainstream officials at the state and national levels, the tribe's problems and, and pleas for, for co cooperation in, in, in addressing them are not a matter of, of priority or not much on the political radar. The invisibility of Native Americans in my mainstream society and politics is, is a function of their relatively small numbers in the United States, coupled with the impulse 
of many among the, the, the dominant majority to simply avoid thinking about the re reality and aspirations of Native Americans, especially when to do so would recall a discomforting history. Now, perhaps you'll remember the once well-known commentator, Bill O'Reilly. Well, he succumbed to this impulse in deriding uh, my United Nations report on the United States during a segment of his previously aired Fox News show. Uh, he bantered around with another now obscure figure, the comedian and pundit, uh, Dennis Miller. Uh, uh, they, they, they talked about and criticized my, my UN inquiry into the conditions of indigenous peoples in the country. Now, in, in the banter, or O'Reilly declared that Native Americans, quote, should just get over it. And Miller, thinking he was funny, approvingly responded and said with his attempted sarcasm that Native Americans should instead be called, he said, the casino owning Americans. And, and then they, they both continued to talk and just bash the United Nations. Now that, that such sentiments toward Native Americans are, are, are reflexively expressed in what was once at least part of the, the American mainstream media is, is, is telling. Now, now the appearance of, of casinos on Indian reservations in the last uh, few decades has, has conveniently provided many with blinders to popularize the invisibility of Native Americans their disadvantaged conditions and the historical roots of those conditions. But according to studies, in reality, only a minority of the over 500 federally recognized tribes in the United States have, have casinos. And only a minority of the casinos provide, actually provide the amount of revenue to enable tribes to distribute substantial uh, per capita payments to tribal members. Now, far from rendering Native Americans a class of, uh, of economic barons, the the Indian casinos represent an, an adaptive economic strategy of self-help in the midst of ongoing challenges uh, and a strategy that has, in most cases, uh, gone into help, helping to rebuild uh, native cultures and communities in positive ways. Now, it should go without saying that, that key federal laws and programs beginning with the uh, Indian Self-Determination and Education Act of 1973 an act, another act adopted by Congress, um, and also of, uh, important federal court decisions uh, affirming the inherent um, sovereignty, and in, in, in those terms, the inherent sovereignty of tribes over lands and uh, and their members uh, and tribal members. These have contributed to uh, effective self-governance and improved conditions for Native uh, Americans in many places. And additionally, um, during the Obama and now Biden administrations, uh, the federal executive branch has enacted a number of needed reforms in government programming and increased funding for the benefit of tribes and, and their members in certain areas. Uh, and the executive branch has advanced the, the settlement of claims for government misuse of tribal assets, although uh, still not without uh, some ongoing controversy. Uh, nonetheless, um, by all accounts, there, there is yet to be an adequate reckoning for what has been taken from or inflicted upon the first Americans. By and large, Native Americans re remain alienated and disadvantaged as they strive to maintain the integrity of their distinct cultures along with their social 
and economic development. It is clear that numerous matters relating to the history of misdealing and harm inflicted uh, on indigenous peoples are, are still unresolved. Historical wrongs continue to live in intergenerational memory and, and trauma and together with current systemic problems, they still inflict harm and, and suppress indigenous uh, cultures. Across the United States, you can hear of specific unresolved problems of historical origins and systemic dimensions. And these problems continue to breed disharmony, dislocation, and hardship. The sentiment that Native Americans should just get over it is largely premised on the view that the wrongs against them are a matter of distant history with little or, or no effects on lives in the present. But if you, you turn an objective eye, toward, objective eye toward the reality of indigenous peoples in the United States as elsewhere, you can readily see that the accumulated wrongs continue to be very much felt today. And I'm convinced that unless genuine movement is made toward resolving these pending matters, the, the place of indigenous peoples within the United States will continue to be a disadvantaged and inequitable, inequitable one. And the country's moral standing will continue to suffer. Now, in my UN report on the United States, I called for robust measures of reconciliation that build upon initiatives and, and processes, in fact, already in place. Now, in human relations, as we know, reconciliation means confronting and overcoming the roots and manifestations of inequity and disharmony. Now, the United States did take a step in this direction in, in 2010 when it adopted a resolution of apology to the indigenous peoples of the country following in the spirit uh, of an apology previously issued to uh, Native Hawaiians in 1993. Now, in the resolution, after, after citing a series of wrongdoings against Native Americans, uh, the resolution states, and I'm quoting now, the United States acting through Congress apologizes on behalf of the people of the United States for the many instances of violence, maltreatment, and neglect inflicted on Native peoples by citizens of the United States and expresses its regret." And, end quote. Now, the policy also urges, and I, I quote again, the, urges the, the president to acknowledge the wrongs of the United States against Indian tribes in the history of the United States in order to bring healing to this land, end quote. Now, that's, that's remarkable, I think, and the full text of the, of the apology bears, uh, bears uh, reading. But phenomenally, phenomenally the, 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 and strangely, really, the apology was, was buried deep in a Defense Appropriations Act. And apparently few indigenous people, much less the public in general, were made aware of it. And, I just came across it, uh, in, in, by, by, in looking for something else when I was researching uh, an article few, several years ago. Otherwise, I wouldn't know about it. Uh, 
Now, stepping back a little bit, let's. I, I want to refer to uh, a great thinker and and man who passed away recently, Desmond Tutu. Uh, he said, and I'm quoting him: "Forgiving and being reconciled are are not about pretending that things are other than they are. It is not about patting one another on the back and turning a blind eye to the wrong. True." Reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the hurt, the truth. It is a risky undertaking, but in the end, it is worthwhile. Because in the end, only an honest confrontation with reality can bring real healing. Superficial reconciliation can bring only superficial healing. Powerful words, but they ring as, as they, they, they resonate with the, the situation that I'm talking about. Now, I, I still hold out hope that the congressional resolution of apology to the, the country's first peoples can be a pre precursor to, a, a more, to more than just superficial reconciliation. But in, in order to do so, it needs to be more widely known to be a point of public awakening so that it can then mark a path for concrete measures to address issues whose, resolu whose resolution is essential to defeating the disharmony in favor of genuine healing. It is surprising how little was known of the 2010 Congressional Resolution of Apology when it was passed and of course, it is even less known today. It's, it's, it's really something how little was ever said of it publicly by either members of Congress or, or the executive and, and how absent it, it, has, it, it was and still is or, and is likely to ever be uh, from the mainstream uh, media. And similar statements of apology in other countries, in particular in Canada and Australia, were were ceremoniously proclaimed by the heads of governments of those, of those countries. And, and they were proclaimed in the spotlight of the media and were followed by specific action uh, to promote reconciliation. However, and it should, should be observed, how, even though that the, the steps toward re reconciliation still are far from uh, complete or, or adequate. But the, 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 the apology and, and steps toward healing by the US Congress did not and, and have not and are likely not, I'm afraid, to much see the light of day. The invisibility of Native Americans and their concerns persist. Now, I think that reconciliation uh, requires a national conversation conversation assisted rather than impeded by the media, a conversation that overcomes the invisibility of Native Americans and engenders a fresh understanding of their cultures and, and contributions to the building of the country. It requires that public officials at both the federal and state levels enhance lines of, of communication to build or strengthen understanding and cooperatively develop needed reforms in legislation and government programming. And it requires coming fairly to terms with the still unresolved claims to possession 
the possession of or, or access to lands to which indigenous peoples maintain cultural and spiritual ties or the, or the that are potentially important to uh, their economic development and, and health. It's, it's, it's widely apparent that uh, securing indigenous peoples access to sacred places, places sacred to them is fundamentally important to their uh, cultural integrity uh, and well-being. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is now nearly 15 uh, years old, is an important impetus and guide for measures to address the concerns of Native, American, Native Americans and to move toward genuine reconciliation. The Declaration has as its central purpose the goal of remedying the injustices and inequitable conditions faced by Indigenous peoples across the globe. It calls for determined action to secure their rights within a model of respect for their self-determination and their distinctive cultural, identi cultural identities. Now, the, the declaration represents a global consensus among governments and indigenous peoples worldwide that in principle has been joined in by the United States as well as by indigenous peoples in this country. It was adopted, as I said, by the United Nations General Assembly, and it was done with the affirmative votes of an overwhelming majority of UN member states amid expressions of celebration by indigenous peoples from around the world. Now, at the urging of indigenous leaders from throughout the country, uh, President Obama announced the United Nations support for the declaration on December 16, 2010, reversing the United States earlier position. And he did so before a gathering at the White House of leaders of indigenous nations and tribes. Now, importantly, the, the, or significantly, I think, the Trump administration did not reverse that support for the declaration and the current Biden administration has, has revived an overt policy of support for, us, for it. Now, by its very nature, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples being a General Assembly resolution and not a treaty is not itself legally binding. But as I explained earlier, it is a reflection and an extension of international legal commitments assumed by countries ac across the globe, including the United States. These commitments include those made by UN member states to respect, protect, and fulfill human rights under the United Nations Charter, uh, customary international law and multilateral human rights treaties to which the United States is a party. The declaration embodies a convergence of common understanding about the rights of indigenous peoples upon a foundation of fundamental human rights, including rights of equality, uh, self-determination, uh, property and cultural integrity. It is a product of more than two decades of deliberations in which the experiences and aspirations of indigenous peoples worldwide along with failures and successes of the relevant laws and policies of governments were closely examined with a view toward promoting human rights. The Declaration's power is fundamentally in the ideas it represents, ideas drawing from widely held fundamental concepts of, of justice. The Declaration can and should now be seen as part of the United States domestic and foreign policy. And this is indicated by a paper circulated by the US State Department with the announcement of US support for the declaration. The, the paper expounds upon the affirmation that, and I quote, the United States aspires 
to improve relations with indigenous peoples by looking to the principles embodied in the declaration. Now with, with its legal and policy characteristics and the moral force behind it, the declaration ser should, should serve as a beacon for executive, legislative and judicial decision makers in relation to issues concerning in indigenous peoples of this country. And all such decision-making should incorporate awareness and close consideration of the declaration's terms. Additionally, the declaration is an instrument that should motivate and guide steps toward a, a new social consciousness in the American people, which is indispensable for the still needed reconciliation of the majority with the country's indigenous peoples. The declaration envisions a future in which the countries of the world embrace and uplift indigenous peoples and celebrate their cultures with effective recognition of their rights to exist as distinct peoples in harmony with the societies that have grown up around them, free from social and economic disparities rooted in histories of oppression. Realization of this kind of future in the United States could only serve to further the values of equality and democracy that the country in principle embraces. So as we ponder the possibilities of a genuine process of reconciliation, it's very obvious that history cannot be undone. But the future can mark a new direction, a point stressed to me in the letter in the letters from the students at White River High School in South Dakota, just outside the Rosebud uh, Sioux Reservation. A, a future of reconcili reconciliation uh, should, should, should include uh, looking for ways to restore to indigenous people some measure of control over lands to which they have a legitimate claim, especially lands taken from them in flagrant violation of treaty rights or US law and over which they maintain still strong cultural ties. So take, for example, the Black Hills of South Dakota, which were guaranteed to the Lakota and other tribes of the Great Sioux Nation by the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868. But as confirmed by the US Supreme Court, the Black Hills were taken from the Sioux tribes illegally. Now, the Lakota and other Sioux tribes have refused to accept compensation for this taking, given the cultural and religious significance that the land has to them, uh, the, the significance the land has to them to this day. My, my statements about the Black Hills as UN Special Rapporteur was sensationalized by some in the media as a demand to give all lands taken from Native Americans back to them. And of course, that overblown media reporting was with regard, without regard for the context of reconciliation in which my statements were made or, about, or, or, or without regard for what I actually said. In fact, there are important precedents for the restoration of control over, um, over or, or, or access to the land uh, to indigenous peoples in the United States. Uh, these include uh, the return of the sacred blue lake to Taos Pueblo in 1971 and the restoration of land to the Timbuche Shoshone tribe in 2000. Both land areas were, were stored from land under federal administration with no negative consequences for any proper, for, for, for any individual non-indigenous property interest. Other exemplary action is the initiative to transfer management of national park lands to the Oglala Sioux tribe in South Dakota. 
and and the establishment and and then reestablishment after Trump disestablished it, the reestablishment of the Bears Ears National Monument, a place sacred to native peoples of that area. Now these kind of measures reveal needed understanding of the centrality of land and geographic spaces to the physical and cultural well-being of indigenous peoples in accordance with standards now prevailing internationally and accepted by the United States in principle. In the characterization of my recommendation to further, to further restore land to Native Americans as an absurd call to return the country's entire landmass back to indigenous ownership, we see again the impulse to keep invisible the true nature of the matter. Yet if such invisibility can be overcome, I hope it will yield to a future in which, for example, the Black Hills would not just be seen as the home of the iconic Mount Rushmore or symbolize the defeat of indigenous American, Americans. It should be possible to find ways in which the Black Hills, an area that, is, that at present is, is almost all designated federal public land, can, can once again be part of the life of the indigenous people for whom it remains sacred, as well as a, as a place revered, revered by the American public more broadly. Perhaps the, the, the Black Hills could be a truly American cultural icon, icon, a symbol of true cultural sharing and even common cultural identity for both the Americas first peoples or the first peoples of America and, and those who came later. Now think about that idea and imagine what it would mean to the Lakota kids at White River High School. We thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you, Professor Anaya, for your very insightful presentation. Um, all the issues you just touched on are incredibly important and fundamental to initiate actual change. So thank you for sharing your knowledge. Um, right now, we will shift into the question and answer section of the presentation. Um, and we do have some pre-submitted audience questions. Uh, so I'll just kick it off with the first one here. Um, it reads, by the time the international community is stirred, isn't it almost too late for the indigenous population? And how effective is the international community in addressing injustices waged against indigenous peoples within the borders of sovereign nations? That's a, that's a, a good question. And one that um, was asked when uh, decades ago when uh, indigenous peoples in the modern era, I should say, uh, started appealing to the United Nations uh, to address in some way uh, their concerns and, 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 and grievances. Um, yes, a lot of damage has been inflicted, but um, it's not too late to address that. And, and that's partly because uh, indigenous peoples have been so resilient and, and, and continue, have survived as distinct peoples with their, uh, their identities as such uh, intact. In, in and, and they have they have shown innovation in, in themselves building up uh, their communities, uh, restoring the, their their cultures, uh, and uh, and developing their their economies consistent with with their values. Um, 
the, the, the adoption of the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and the, and, and the developments that have led to a body of international law concerning Indigenous Peoples demonstrates the faith that no, it's not too late and that somehow these uh, standards that have been developed can make a difference. And, and we do see them, it's remarkable, um, making, making a difference, at least in so far as they've influenced the reforms and law and policies in countries throughout the world. Now, we can't say that things are where that, what they need to be even close. They're still far from, the, the conditions of indigenous peoples are still far from the ideals represented in the, in, the, in the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. But what we've seen is the Declaration and related developments in international law have really motivated a wave of reforms across the countries. Across the across the world, um, and and I would venture to say, in, in, including in, in in our own country, um, for example, constitutions throughout um, Central South America, uh, which have been revised, reformed, or newly adopted uh, in in the country in the countries in those regions, invariably have included provisions affirming the rights of indigenous peoples, more or less consistent with the Declaration. Some even referring to the UN Declaration, judicial decisions throughout um, the North, Central, South American region now uh, almost routinely uh, refer to uh, the, the Declaration or international standards in addressing indigenous people's claims. Now, uh, the US lags behind that because uh, fundamentally of our sense of exceptionalism and, and the way that our legal system treats international law, which is to essentially not um, not see it as, as supplying a rule of decision and judicial decisions for the most part. So the U.S. now um, substantially lags, uh, lags in, in the way I'm, uh, what I'm uh, talking about in terms of judicial application of these international norms. But in other respects, we do see executive action. We have seen executive action moving uh, in, in, in roughly in line with, uh, with the declaration. So I think the hope um, springs eternal and that hope has been such that the, the, the move to establish international norms is, has been, as driven by indigenous peoples has been largely successful as represented in the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in particular. And the experience that we, we see in the last uh, decade and a half, say, has been one of, uh, of, of, of giving reason for, for more hope. Yeah, thank you. Um, and maybe this builds off of your answer right now, but uh, we have another question asking about nationalistic thinking and whether or not you think that that's instinctive or learned and how societies can better guide citizens in less nationalistic thinking as whole. Right. That is very interesting because it's been really a, a significant part nationalistic thinking that has uh, animated um, the exclusion of indigenous peoples and the invisibility that I was uh, referring to. Nationalistic thinking, what I'm referring to is the, is the emergence of a, of a national identity in countries that many of which have themselves grown up from, from processes of colonization like the United States. But part of the project, project of building a, a, a country out of the, the process of colonization as has happened in the United States is, is the effort to build this national identity. And once that is established, then it tries to squeeze out those who don't conform to it. And that's precisely as what has happened to, to indigenous peoples. And you, we saw that in, in, the, um, in the, the words of the opinion by Justice Reed that I quoted. Which he, in which he, he relegated indigenous identity as, as one of savagery and one that justified the conquering 
of the of indigenous people. Um, and I, I believe that 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 um, there is a natural tendency for people to come together in solidarity for each other, and indeed that that tendency is a is among indigenous peoples. But I think the nationalism, which turns into exclusion and bigotry, is something that is learned. That is something that 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 um, that is learned and uh, perhaps is born out of out of fear, uh, out of a, a sense of of uh, of not being exposed ex uh, exposed or, or out of not being exposed to difference uh, and 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 out of a sense of of, of false superiority uh, that that is um, animated by a number of social factors but I think those processes are learned I think the the, the modern trends uh, across the globe which I think we, we tend to often, uh, not notice enough or not celebrate enough is for more multicultural uh, understanding and more uh, of a of a sense of of a national identity uh, around the, the not just tolerance but the celebrating of, of diverse cultures and identity and the nationalistic trends that we see today are really a reaction to that to the to the, the the more dominant trend that 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 I think exists, which is one of of, of tolerance and of coexistence among different cultures, and nationalism, like I say, is is a reaction to that. Um, and then I think maybe we have time for one more question. Um, so, what would you say? building off of that is deterring the United States from rec recognizing and reconciling with the more objective reality about the history of our interaction with our indigenous peoples beyond maybe just tolerance or um, accepting it as a norm. It's, yeah, it's mostly ignorance and the invisibility that I, I talked about. Um, ignorance that is, is not entirely innocent. You know, last I think is why well, I, I think at least as I tried to indicate with my story about um, Bill O'Reilly and, and the exchange he had with uh, Dennis Miller. Of course, they might they re they represent a certain segment of of, uh, of thinking in 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 the country. But I I think that attitude is 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 not um, just uh, born by those on the conservative right or that tend toward the conservative right. I think um, even, or maybe not even, but you know, among liberals, the, the dominant thinking has been say through the 60s, 70s, 80s, through, even through the 90s is that um, we should all forget these, these differences and, and come together that, that the law should treat everybody uh, equally and that we, we should just uh, all agree to uh, speak English and, and and take on the 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 ideal of of the projected ideal of American uh, identity and and that that thinking towards wanting to homogenize, coupled with the sense that the American identity is to superior to others, sort of feeds into the ignorance. It becomes more uh, convenient to be ignorant and to see and to not to see the, the reality uh, of indigenous peoples. Hence, our, uh, the books that are used in our schools 
the many in, 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 in the and also the the kind of of education that we have in higher education in many ways um, is invisible to, uh, to 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 native peoples, and that makes it its way into the in, into politics. Um, and when there aren't strong political forces that are motivating reform uh, and action to address these historical issues and the contemporary legacies of them, uh, it's hard to move the dial. Now, not to stop on an, on an optimist, on a pessimistic note, um, you know, there are trends in the direction of reform and, and, and uh, the, that, that, that trend sounds, of, uh, uh, it sounds in, in the way of, of, of animating further, further uh, reform. So I, I am hopeful and optimistic. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Professor and I for spending your evening with us and, and sharing all your insights and knowledge and everything. It's been really great listening to you speak. Um, right now, I will turn things over to Dean Peart to round us out. Thank you. Thanks so much, Caitlin, and thank you, Professor Anaya, for your remarks this evening. Uh, you've given us much to think about. I'm greatly appreciative of your optimistic and hopeful stance toward these very difficult questions. Our students at the university, including those at Jepson and our audience writ large, are anxious to effect change, and you've given us many great ideas about how best to support real reconciliation in the future. So thank you. Um, and now I'd like as well to thank our colleagues in alumni relations, including uh, Megan Dooley, who's been very helpful this, in organizing this event. Um, I'd like to remind you to check the Jepson Schools and the Alumni Relations Facebook page, uh, as well as uh, their Instagram page. Um, and please uh, keep your eyes open for our next events. Um, and with that, I'll close the program and wish everyone uh, have a wonderful rest of your evening. And thank you again, Professor Anaya. That was just wonderful. Thank you.